Well, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, it tells us John, the Baptist, while imprisoned, heard the words or the works of Christ, and he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Father, this morning we pray that you help us to see Jesus. Just to see Jesus. Our Father, it it is true that when my eyes are on Jesus, the world can be falling apart around me. And it's okay. Help us to see Jesus, Father, and in that vision, whatever the circumstance of our lives, to be encouraged this morning. Help us see Jesus. Holy Spirit, as we study now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at 4 o'clock in the morning, Wednesday, Ghana time, Cheryl was startled awake to the sound of shouting in the street outside the mission house. Obama! 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 So she knew the election results. Also on Wednesday, I was sent this article, and I thought I would share it with you. It's entitled, In Some Nations People Look to Obama as President of the World. Barack Obama's election on Tuesday set off international celebrations and ignited a fervor for the United States that has been unseen since the days immediately following the September 11, 2001 terror attacks. To some observers, the international reaction has elevated America's president-elect to an unparalleled post, president of the world. In Kenya, where Obama's father was born, a national holiday was declared on Thursday. In Indonesia, children danced at the school Obama attended when he was a young boy, embracing him as much for what he represents abroad as for the policies he advocates at home. People from all over Africa, especially in Kenya, where this is a holiday, are feeling that the most powerful person in the United States does not have to be a white guy. And by the way, I like that. I think that's wonderful. That's a huge breakthrough for the United States and for humanity, said Walter Russell Mead, the Henry A. Kissinger Senior Fellow for U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. How do you like a title like that? That would be a long like, calling card, wouldn't it? You'd have to go around onto the back to see the whole thing. This is the fall of the Berlin, Berlin Wall times 10. Ramai Yade, France's junior minister for human rights, told French Radio, On this morning, we all want to be American, so we can take a bite of this dream unfolding before our eyes. America's popularity abroad waned dramatically during the Bush administration, and some voters expressed hopes that in electing Obama, they could restore the country's image. The wave of good feelings since Tuesday night suggests that even before taking office, Obama has made substantial inroads. This may be the beginning of a new world. It marks the end of the old elites and opens the door for new approaches worldwide. An Israeli man in his mid-50s said in Tel Aviv. Well, it goes on and on and talks about this, this reaction internationally to the election of Barack Obama. And it says at the end, I just thought this was interesting, this is the way the... Uh, the secular news agency finished this article. 
Not everybody is going to get what they want, but this is a moment of hope, said Mead, who added that Obama was sure to fall short of some expectations. If you look at Jesus Christ, he walked on the water and fed the 5,000, and he ended up getting crucified. So I think it's not unlikely that the president-elect Obama is going to disappoint some people also. Rick, are you about to make allusion to Antichrist? No, I'm not. <laughs> In some ways I just did, but no, I'm not. And, I, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to be political this morning. It's not my point. Whether you voted for or against Barack Obama, whether you voted for McCain or Obama, it, it's, it's beside the point now. Obama is our president-elect. And come January, he will be our president. Unless, of course, Jesus comes first, which would be absolutely fine with me. It always is fine with me. There are some who would have us believe that it's a whole new world this week. There are some, on the other hand, who are very worried, very disappointed, very discouraged. What's interesting to me is I'm not sure that, that we recognize yet the disappointment factor. If you watched the acceptance speech that Obama gave on Tuesday night, you saw him walk out on that stage to throngs of people. And the thought that hit my mind was how can any man live up to this? It can't be done. It can't be done. Now, not making a comparison to Antichrist, truly I'm not, but do you realize that even the Bible says that the Antichrist, after about three years of a reign, that the entire world is going to turn on him? Because no man can live up to this. No man can carry this burden. And there is going to be a disappointment factor. I don't know how great it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to look like. And I'm not hoping for it, by the way. This is my country, and I love my country. And and Barack Obama is going to be my president, just as George Bush was my president. And I want to encourage all of you to pray, pray, pray for President-elect Obama. Pray for our congressional leaders. Pray for the policies. Pray for truth. Pray for the Lord to interfere in America and that His will will be done. I'm not going to get any more political than that other than to say, well, other than just to read a couple of scriptures. I want you to hear these. Psalm 62.11 Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. Now Wednesday night I shared what Spencer shared with me on Sunday morning. And that was a vision that he had before we even began our study. A vision of many lanterns. Lanterns lit up bright. And the Lord said to Spence, when it gets really dark, the lanterns shine brighter. So whatever happens in the future of our country, whatever happens in your individual life, the darker it gets, the brighter the light of Jesus Christ can shine in your life. Pray for that. John said in 1 John chapter 2, the darkness is passing away, and yet the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 
And yet for all this, some of you may still say, Ricky, I'm so deflated. Some of you this morning are incredibly discouraged and probably not even having to do with the election. Maybe you're discouraged about your 401ks. Maybe you're discouraged about something going on in your family. Discouraged at work. Discouraged at what's happening in your life. Hannah and I watched another movie this week, earlier this week, The Hiding Place. Another one that I strongly recommend that you watch if you've never seen it. The story of Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy and their father and their family and how they were hiding Christians, they're hiding Jews during the time of the Nazi Holocaust there in Holland. And Corey Ten Boom, it follows the whole story about how she and her sister end up in a concentration camp because of this. Her sister would die there. Her father would die just ten days after being incarcerated. All of her brothers would die. Her family would be gone. She ultimately, on a technicality, by mistake, gets released and goes home. And after that, spent the rest of her life, she died in 1983, but she spent the rest of her life, 40 years, traveling the globe. She went to over 60 different countries with one message. There is no pit so deep that the Lord is not deeper still. What an amazing truth. Now this morning, as we continue on in the Gospel According to Matthew, we meet a man who is in a pit. A man who is in the dungeon of despair. John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist came storming onto the scene after 400 years of a holy pause. So quiet was the Lord during that time that when John showed up, it was obvious this man was a prophet of God. This man was speaking truth. This man had a fiery passion in his eyes. He's the last prophet before the coming of Messiah. The prophet prior to him, the last one to speak the actual words of God, 400 plus years, 500 years earlier, was a prophet by the name of Malachi, whose name ironically means my messenger. And Malachi spoke these words by the Spirit. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And that messenger was John the Baptist. John was a great man. As a matter of fact, Jesus referred to him as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. That's incredible. That's compared to Moses and Elijah, men like Isaiah, of amazing power and influence in their day, and yet Jesus says, among women born, none is greater than John the Baptist. Of course, he gives another, another nod after that. He says, of course, even the least in the kingdom is greater than John. We'll get to explaining that probably on Wednesday night. But the messenger himself had a messenger. The forerunner had a forerunner. Malachi prophesied John would come as much as John prophesied the coming of Messiah. And we know before John was even born, the Lord sent the angel Gabriel to John's father, Zacharias, in the temple. His father was was serving in the temple. He was in the holy place, and he was offering incense on the altar of incense. John's dad was. This is something that the priests would do. And part of that offering of incense, there's, a, there's a, a direct connection to prayer there. Prayer is even referred to in the book of Revelation as incense coming up before the Father. 
And so we have John's dad in there offering incense, and no doubt he's praying. Some have speculated that he may have been praying for his wife Elizabeth who was barren. They had never had a child. Perhaps he was praying for that very thing. But in that place, in the temple, as John is alone in the holy place, suddenly the angel Gabriel shows up. Luke chapter 1, verse 13, Gabriel said to, to Zacharias, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And by the way, the angel says, Do not be afraid. Not because he looked like a Victorian woman with nice silky wings. He said, do not be afraid, because when you see an angel, it's a frightening sight. Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Your petition has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. See, Zacharias was disappointed. Zacharias stood there. And Gabriel says, your petition has been heard, which means we know Zacharias has been praying about this, and possibly right at that moment... (laughs) I don't know how you can help it. You're supposed to be in there lighting the incense and praying for the people of Israel and at the same time you go, Oh Lord, by the way, i got to petition myself. I really like a son. I really like an heir. I know Elizabeth would. Well, Gabriel told Zacharias, You will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be a great, great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in His mother's womb. That is uncanny, unbelievable, fantastic. Even believers today are not filled with the Holy Spirit in our mother's womb. Although John was. I wonder how our abortion stance today would have affected that situation. How do you know? How do you know what God's plan is for the child in the womb? How do you really know? We don't. We have no idea. At best, we can claim ignorance as to what God is going to do with the child. He will turn, Gabriel says, many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is He who will go as a forerunner before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John was also a Nazarite. We talked about Nazarites before, and I know the birds are excited this morning. It's warm in here. But John was a Nazarite. You remember what a Nazarite is? It's a man who who sets himself apart to God. And it could be for a season. In John's case, it was his entire life. The Nazarite committed to be focused on the Lord, to not drink any strong drink or wine at all, never to cut his hair, And finally, not to touch dead things. Those are the three things that a Nazarite committed himself to. Total separation to the Lord. And I'll tell you what, John the Baptist was a real man's man. He was a man among men. This guy was was a man to aspire to. If you're a man here today, prior to the coming of Jesus, I would say John is the guy to be like. Truly wild at heart. A man of the wilderness... That was his home, Isaiah the prophet foretold in Isaiah 40, verse 30, or verse 3, a voice calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. John was that camel hair wearing, leather belted locust, and wild honey eating fiery prophets. Cool. He didn't wear nice white shirts and vests. 
And the people loved John. Matthew chapter 3 verse 5 says in Jerusalem, they were all going out to him. All Judea and the district around the Jordan. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. The people were taken with this guy John. An incredible man. Luke chapter 3 verse 18 tells us he even boldly took on the establishment. No fear. He went head to head with King Herod himself. It says with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people, Luke 3.18. And in verse 19 it says, When Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod added this to them all, he locked John up in prison. You see, Herod took his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, to be his own wife. Interesting, adulterous situation. Now, I'm not saying John was overzealous, but sometimes in our moments of glorious conviction, when we're standing for the truth, and we're preaching the word, and we're saying, yes, this is it, this is the way it is, we don't think about the possible fallout. Sometimes we think ourselves invincible, as though we can say anything. Rebuke anyone. Take on any authority in the name of Jesus. And I believe in Jesus we can, but, but listen... That doesn't mean there's not going to be fallout. doesn't mean there's not going to be backlash. Teenagers determine to take a stand for Jesus. They say, I'm going to live for Him. And I'm going to speak out when I see things going wrong in my school. Don't be surprised, teens. Don't be surprised when your own friends turn against you for it. Standing up for Jesus in the marketplace is a wonderful thing to do. To determine at work... At my job site, I am going to stand for what's right. I'm not going to put up with things that are not good, that are not right. I am going to speak the name of Jesus again and again. That could cost you a promotion. In some cases, it could cost you your job. In the best case scenario, people may look at you differently. Worst case scenario, they will malign you and discriminate against you. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be Persecuted. Midweek Bible students remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 21. You can all look at this. He said, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. Verse 24, he said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. And if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Jesus said, Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak it in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops... Don't be afraid. Get out there and speak the name. But know this. Understand. It will cost you. And Jesus would at a later date say you've got to count that cost. Because if you don't, you might find yourself severely disappointed if not hurt. John was absolutely justified in calling out Herod and Herodias. He was absolutely justified in pointing the finger and vocalizing Herod's marital Adultery. What's interesting is none of the other Jewish leaders were saying a thing about it in that day. The religious establishment, those men who were supposed to be proclaiming righteousness, said nothing. 
As Herod did whatever he wanted to do. John was the only voice, and that voice then caused him to be thrown into prison. And we get a sense in the passage before us this morning that John, if not doubting his course, was at least deflated and discouraged and demoralized. Did you know that John, of his three-year ministry, only spent one year baptizing people by the Jordan? The last two years of John's ministry, he was in prison. Writing letters. He had disciples coming to him, visiting him in prison, and taking his messages out. But he only had one year of influence in all the land of Judea. And spent the final two there, rotting in a jail cell, a prison fortress called Machaerus. If he had any view out of his cell at all, it would have been the beautiful view of the Dead Sea. That's where Machaerus was located. And I believe John the Baptist is now John the Bummed Out. John is discouraged. Some commentators speculate that John would send his disciples to teach and to reassure them that Jesus is the Son of God. When he sent his disciples to see Jesus and said, Hey, hey, go and ask him, are you the expected one? Some say, oh, well, John did that because he wanted his disciples to know what he himself already knew. I'm not sure that's the case. Others think John just wanted to clear up some confusion about the things he'd been hearing about Jesus. Let's make sure we know what's going on. I think it's pretty obvious that John was discouraged. That he was bummed out. That he, he was worried for three reasons. First off, John knew exactly who Jesus was. He didn't need to ask who Jesus was. John knew. Over in, in the book of John, John the Apostle, chapter 1 and verse 29, it tells us the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew who Jesus was. He had no need to ask. He knew. John said, This is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Everyone knows John was born first. John knew that Jesus came first. I did not recognize him, John said, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now this passage I know confuses some people. We've talked about it before. Let me just clear it up. When John says, I did not recognize him, it wasn't that he didn't know who Jesus was. Because Jesus was John's cousin. He knew who Jesus was. What he did not recognize until Jesus' baptism was that Jesus was Messiah. That Jesus was the Holy One of God. That He was the Son of God. But at the moment of the baptism that John himself did, putting Jesus down in the water, bringing Him out of the water, the Spirit descends on Him like a dove, and John realizes He's the One. He is the Messiah. He knew this for a fact, and yet, back in Matthew 11... He said, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? John knew. John knew. John recognized Jesus for who he was long before he landed himself in prison. Second thing is that John knew exactly what it was that he was asking Jesus. Not only did he know who Jesus was, but he knew what he was asking Jesus. Listen to the question again. Verse 3, are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? The phrase expected one in the Hebrew is the word bow. 
The letter B, the letter O. O, are you the expected one, the coming one? It was a well-known Hebrew reference for Messiah. Mark chapter 11, verse 9 tells us that those who went in front and those who were following behind, this is a Jesus triumphal entry, they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He who comes is Bo. The expected one, the coming one. Blessed is the coming one in the name of the Lord, they shouted. Well, Psalm 118, 26 said the same thing. Blessed is the one who comes. In the name of the Lord. Again, that same Hebrew word. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. It's the same word again. Bo, the expected one. An expected one was coming. The coming one. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus was the expected one. Messiah, the expected one. And any Jewish person who had known anything about their Hebrew scriptures could be asked, what are some names for Messiah? And they would answer, the expected one, Bo. So let me ask you, is Jesus your expected one? Is Jesus your Bo? Is He the one who's coming? Do you expect His soon return? I've shared this many times. I'll share it again. The motivation of expectation has a purifying effect in our lives. It does many things for us. It motivates us, but it also purifies us. Looking to the coming of Jesus and the hope that Jesus will come now, even today, purifies. You can't be thinking about His coming and be walking in unrighteousness. It's only when I ignore Jesus, it's only when I refuse to consider Jesus, when I'm not, as Les said, when I'm not remembering Him, that's when I tend to get off in my own sin. But when I expect Him at any moment, it purifies me, John said. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope, fixed on Him, purifies himself just as He is pure. John's question of the expected one, are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else, it implies despair. Because John knew who Jesus was, at least his head knew, but listen to me, John's head knew, but his heart was aching. His heart was hurting. You can know who Jesus is, but if you're in a place of sorrow, hurt, and woundedness, It's hard to know if Jesus is going to be who you know He is. It's hard to know to believe. John is, I believe, asking, you're the Messiah, so why haven't you established your kingdom? Why haven't you rescued me out of this dungeon? Have you ever asked that question? If you're God, why? If you're the King, how come? If you're Messiah, if you're Savior, then why do I have to deal with this? Why am I now in this place? Instead of a messianic rescue, John was stuck in the messed up reality of prison. The kingdom was not coming. This one who is to be king is not doing what he thought he should be doing. And so John says, are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Brothers and sisters, if that hasn't happened to you, if you haven't asked that question, there may be a time in your life when you will. 
Are you the coming one? You believe in God, but you have trouble believing God for His promises. If that's you today, listen. Third thing to note, that Jesus knew exactly how to answer John the bummed out. Once again, Jesus is purposeful in everything He says and does. He doesn't just throw off a fly-by-night, off-the-handle answer, yeah, go tell John whatever. He doesn't say, yeah, go tell John, yeah, I am. No worries, no big deal, I am. Jesus is specific. Listen to what Jesus says in His answer. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In His perfect response, Jesus not only said what John needed most to hear, He said what we need to hear when we're in the prison of despair. When you're doubting, when you're hurting, when you're wounded, when you're not sure if Jesus is the God that He promised to be. Oh, again, you know it in your head, but you're questioning in your heart because of the pain in your life. A couple of things to note. First off, Jesus, I believe, said, tell John, open your eyes to what's going on. Open your eyes to what's going on. People who are blind are seeing again. Paraplegics are long jumping. A former leper is embraced by his wife. A deaf woman hears the sound of her own worship. A father whose daughter was dead is now playing and laughing with her. Look around, John. Open your eyes to what's going on. Yes, you're in prison, John. Yes, times are hard. But God has not stopped doing good in this world. Look around you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Paul gave us something that is easy in the good times and very difficult in the hard times. He said, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks. Prior to that, two verses earlier, he said, Rejoice always. He said, pray without ceasing. And in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We're so good at complaining about what's not happening. My candidate did not get elected. You got to vote. That's a good thing. Yeah, but my financial situation's not going well. You have one at least, don't you? There are those who do not have a financial situation at all. My plans are not taking shape. Yeah, but His plans are. Look around you. Don't let the moment of despair in your life be all that you see. We focus down and in and we look at ourselves and the problems. And Jesus says, look at what's going on. People are being healed. Lives are being changed. The work is going forward. There's another great scene in the movie, The Hiding Place where Betsy and, and Corey Tinboom, the sisters, are there in their barracks, tiny little place, and they're, they're eating this soup, and they're eating the bread, the ration for the day. And Betsy, just before she eats, and she really comes off, at least at the beginning, Corey's the one who learns the lesson. Betsy, Betsy just knows the Lord. And before she takes a bite, she says, Oh, thank you, Lord, for this food. And Corey just kind of looks at her and shrugs. And, and Betsy said, Corey, we have to thank the Lord. For everything. And Corey said, I will not thank the Lord for the lice. I will not thank the Lord for the lice. The very next scene, there's a woman in there cutting another woman's hair because of the lice. And the women are all gathered around there in the barracks. 
And she said, you're going to learn to love the little buggers because the guards will not set foot in here for fear of getting the lice. So when we're in here, we can do whatever we want. And Betsy looks at Corey and says, even the lice. (laughs) Open your eyes to what's going on. To the good that is happening. In spite of the worry, the fear, the, the threat to your life, look around. That's the first thing that Jesus says. Secondly, in saying, go and report to John what you hear and see. Interesting, he uses the word here. Report what you hear. Well, what had they just heard? The word. The, the disciples would go and they'd follow Jesus a bit before going back to John and they would hear the teaching. They would hear what was coming out of his mouth. Jesus, the word incarnate. Secondly, open the scriptures to who I am. Open the scriptures to who I am. Verse 5 is a direct reference to that earlier messianic prophecy. We kind of looked at it in a drive-by last week. I want you to turn to it right now. Isaiah 35. Keep your finger in Matthew 11. Go back to Isaiah 35. While you're turning there, let me remind you once again what Jesus said. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Isaiah chapter 35 verse 5. prophet says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. So we read that and say, oh, so this is a, prophet, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Yes, it's also a prophecy of the coming kingdom as yet to be fulfilled. Read on. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, which is not happening. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads, and they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I long for that day when sorrow and sadness flees. When anything that even might be discouraging you right now, listen to me, will not exist any longer. You'll have no reason to despair, no reason to be discouraged. It will flee away and be replaced 100% by the pure joy of the presence of Jesus. And that's the promise. John was looking for the kingdom, which is exactly what Isaiah 35 describes. That's what John was hoping for. Bring the kingdom. I'm, 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 the, I'm the messenger, I'm the forerunner, I'm the one who comes forward to set it up, prepare the people, and now kingdom come, right? John was looking for the kingdom, but because of his despair in the dungeon, he was overlooking the king. He saw the kingdom, but he was missing the king. He wasn't getting who Jesus was. Only Messiah King. And this is why I believe Jesus says, quotes this verse and sends him back. Only Messiah King could do this for the blind. Only King Messiah could could heal the deaf and the lame and the mute and, and raise up the dead, which is exactly what Jesus was doing. Compare Scripture, he says to John, what you know to be truth. 
Compare that to me. Look for me there, John, and you will find me. What John the bummed out needed to see was Jesus for who he is. It's all really we need to see. We need to see Jesus just as he is. Well, some might think, well, it's a little bit of a stretch to add all this stuff into John's emotion and Jesus and and that Jesus was specifically saying, go to Isaiah 35 and and study that out, John. So you're telling me that, that you think that John would have recognized this and gotten his hands on a scroll and turned to that passage for comparison. I'll take it further. I'm pretty convinced that's exactly what Jesus wanted him to do. Why? Look at the beginning of Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. And the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Remember, John's in prison. And either he's looking at cold, dead prison walls, or, if he has any view at all, it's the Dead Sea. It's not the prettiest thing in the world. It's dry and desert and and even the sky and the sea itself can begin to kind of look like one thing as you're... It's not, it's not my favorite place in Israel, although it's austere and there's some wonderful things that happen down that way. No, Carmel. That's beautiful. The Galilee up north. And this prophecy reminds of that. So John's reading this and going, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that's beautiful. The crocus blossoming. Yeah, that would be a beautiful thing. But that's not why I think Jesus turned him to this passage look at verse 4 say to those with anxious hearts take courage fear not behold your God will come with vengeance the recompense of God will come but he will save you John your rescue is coming I absolutely believe that Jesus knew that as John opened up and compared Isaiah's prophecy with what Jesus was doing that his eyes would go up to one verse before that and read, say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. John, you're going to be saved. Your rescue is at hand. So Isaiah 35 is both a prophecy of the coming kingdom and an encouragement from the coming king. Psalm 40, verse 7, a, a verse we quote a lot. It's also Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, quoting it. Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I come is again that Hebrew word, bow. Behold, I come, the expectant one. Because in the scroll of the book, it's, it's written of me. You will see me there. But Jesus offered up one more thing for John's consideration. Open your eyes to what's going on. In all things, be thankful. Open the Scriptures to who I am. I'm right here, John, and you can see this. And finally, finally, back in Matthew chapter 11, open your heart to my offense. Open your heart to my offense. Jesus said, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Well, Rick, that sounds like the opposite of what you're saying. You say, Open my heart, open your heart to my offense, and Jesus says, Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. What are you driving at? Listen, Jesus said, John, I know you're in a depressed state. I know you're in a difficult place. But if you take offense at me, you're only going to stay imprisoned. If you get upset with me, it's just going to be more problematic. 
But if you do not take offense at me, you will move from that place of being bummed to being blessed. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. I need to address this because from time to time, even among Christians and in the church, I hear this. I hear this. Yeah, the other day I was duking it out with God. You know, we were talking, and I was saying, God, you know, I was telling, I was giving him what for. You know, I was angry at God. I was shaking my fist at the Lord. When did we think we had the right to rail against our Father? No, I'm not discounting the place of emotional distress. And I know, because in my life, there have been places where I've been so despairing, I have cried out, Lord, what are you doing? I don't get it. But I think we need to backtrack a, a little bit in our relational Christianity where we see Jesus as our bud and God as the man. I think we need to take a step back and realize that our right to rail against God is really not there. Oh, God can take it. And God can still love you through it. And if you've ever railed against the Father, I want you to know, His grace is bigger than the worst thing you can say or do. However... I do wonder if God ever tires of our complaining. Back in Malachi, we read Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I want to back it up a little bit and listen to verse 17 of Malachi chapter 2, leading into chapter 3. So we, we put the chapters in ourselves. Those were not in the Bible. It just read as one narrative, each one of these books. There weren't verses, that's just to help us find them. Listen to this. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, How have we wearied Him? Well, in that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And He delights in them. Guess what? It's not true. He doesn't just delight in all humanity. He doesn't delight in the person who is sinning. He's not happy with you. Man, if you just say His name, you know... It wearies him. Or, where is the God of justice? Why would you say, where is the God of justice? Well, I think that's what John's saying. Where's the justice? Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? Here I sit in prison and I need to know because right now this is not what I expected. This is not what I had hoped for. This is not what I thought would happen. And yet immediately following, you have worried the Lord with your words... Where is the God of justice? Malachi said, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and my messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? And For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will clean it up. And he's going to burn out the chaff. And all of us who thought it was cool to rail against God are going to be flat on our faces before him going, I am so sorry I ever said anything negative towards you. I realize now how great you are. How small I am. Forgive me, Lord. Remember next time you feel like railing against God that Jesus said, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me okay but Rick you said open your heart to my offense so what does that mean it's an interesting word choice that Jesus uses 
Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. It's a powerfully specific Greek word with an important connection. The word in the Greek is scandalon. Scandalon. It's where we get our word scandalous. Same word that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 1.22 where he says the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, scandalon, and unto the Greeks foolishness and that word by the way is moros where we get our word moron. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Jesus, I believe, says to you and to me today, open your heart to my offense. Open your heart to the scandal which is Christ crucified. An offense to Jews and moronic to the Greeks. The Bill Mars of the world today would say Christianity is a crutch for morons. And he would read it like both a Jew would and a Greek would. Scandalous, moronic, stupid. The whole cross thing, the whole church thing, the whole Jesus thing is just whatever. And Paul said long ago, that attitude is to the Jews scandalous, to the Greeks moronic foolishness. Why? Why does God allow us to go down into dungeons of depression? Or caverns of cancer. Why does He allow us to be locked into prisons of pain and hardship and loss? Listen, my friends. If God had remained silent in the heavens, this would be a devastating question to people of faith. If God had not come, if He had not put on flesh and lived among us, if He had remained silent then humanity's question, why is there pain in the world? It would tear my faith apart. But you know that a scandal happened. That God did not remain silent in the heavens. He remained silent. But He did so in the place of His deepest despair. Isaiah 53 verse 7 said, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. And yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Don't take offense at Jesus, but open your heart to his offense. Come to the scandal. Come to the cross of Christ. In your place of despair, in your place of sorrow, you come to the cross because you won't understand until you stand under the cross. It won't make sense. Until you lift your eyes up to Jesus, the one who was lifted up. John didn't know about the cross. That was before. He came before the cross happened. John would die, the last of the Old Testament prophets, before Jesus died and ushered in the new covenant. John hadn't heard the scandal on. An offense to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to the called Christ, the power of God. Whatever situation you find yourself in, Jesus says, bring it to the cross. Bring it to the cross. His answer to John is powerful. Look around and thank God for what He's doing. 
Open your eyes. Open your heart to the Scriptures that, that teach the truth of Christ. But greater than all these things, come to the cross. Recognize my offense. Embrace what I've done for you. Let's bow. Let's do that right now. I invite you this morning to come under the power of the cross.